Good morning. It is a blessing to be together. I, I don't ever want that to become a throwaway phrase. I know I say that a lot, that it's good to be together, but it is. And it is good to hear you worshiping together with one another, lifting our voice. Even if it is Christmas songs in October, that's what we're here to do, is to celebrate the birth of Jesus this morning. As David mentioned in his prayer, uh, I would appreciate your prayers for us this week as we head south for a few days. Uh, to bring the trailer of stuff. This is what we got from the glory of Christ when we merged with them a couple of years ago. And it's a, basically a whole church in a trailer, sound system and communion supplies and all that stuff. And we wanted to see that used in a church that would honor the Lord, that would preach the gospel. And Tyler is a dear brother in Christ and is faithful to the word of God. So we're very excited that he's able to use those resources as he starts their church and we certainly received much from the Lord as we started Grace Bible Church, and we want to see that uh, reciprocated as we now are able to see these things go to Tyler. So if you think about it, please pray for us as we're traveling, and also for the time at the conference. It's a time of refreshment as I gather with a lot of other, hundreds of other pastors, uh, all like-minded in our conviction of preaching the Word of God in the way that we preach, in the model of church, and all those kinds of things. It's a blessing, so pray for me as I'm down there this week. Because I'm going to be gone for most of the week, uh, I've got Nick Frost coming next Sunday. Nick's an associate pastor at Northwest Bible Church, where we were sent from, and we like to keep those relationships with our partner churches fresh and ongoing, so Nick will be preaching from John 13 about serving one another next Sunday, so I'm excited to hear from him. Well, certainly doesn't feel like Christmas outside, does it? Good old Minnesota strikes again. But that's where we're at in our text. We come this morning to Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And in this text, we're going to see Matthew uh, explaining the birth of Jesus and all the events surrounding that and before and what comes after. So we're going to take verse 18 all the way through the end of the chapter. And then I will finish this nativity section of narrative in two weeks when I'm back in the pulpit. So it'll be two weeks total on the Christmas narrative. Now, I think most of us are generally familiar with what the Bible says about the coming of Jesus. We, we talk about it every December, usually, and as we should, it is the most significant and effective thing that God has done in, in sending his son in the way that he did, and we're going to look at some of those reasons this morning. Now, normally, we'd go to Luke 2. That's kind of the, the classic Christmas text as we see all the details surrounding the coming of Jesus in Luke. And Luke, of course, being a medical doctor, has his own reasons for writing. He has his own kind of slant on what happened here and his unique perspective. And he includes some really amazing details of the coming of Jesus in that second chapter. But Matthew, as we've seen, has his own intention for writing. He has his own emphasis for what he's trying to say to his readers, and so it's going to be very different from Luke's account. So even if we feel like we know this story really well, and again, I mean story as in account, not as in myth or fable, but if we feel like we know the coming of Jesus very well, I just want to encourage you this morning, don't, don't tune it out. Don't assume, yeah, we've heard all this before, we do it every Christmas, every December, it's old news, let's get to the end, I can get out and enjoy this weather. I don't want you to do that, and what I'm going to try to do is pull out some of the unique characteristics of Matthew's writing specifically as he goes through this account. Nothing new, nothing novel, 
I'm not making things up here to keep your interest, but I do want to emphasize things that will enrich our understanding of the Scriptures. I want us to come away from here, if God would be so willing, more convinced of the truthfulness of the Bible and the reliability of the Scriptures and how it can really encourage us. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is how we see the, the triune nature of God at work in the birth of Jesus. And Josh mentioned this in the way we open the service, and we're going to see that again when we close the service together. So if you haven't done so, would you take a Bible and open it to Matthew chapter 1? And if you don't have a Bible, we have them available here. They're out in the lobby just between the two doors there. You can grab a Bible. We invite you to take one with you. We want to see the Word of God in everyone's hands. In fact, you'll see in your bulletin today, there's a handout about Bible translation and how this works, and that's why we as a church support the work of Bible translation, because it is so important that people have the scriptures in their own language, in their own hands, to understand the word of God. So make sure you grab a Bible if you don't have one on your way out. So Matthew chapter 1, we will start in verse 18, and read through the end of the chapter. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is a blessing, it is a joy to be together this morning. And even though some of the details of this text of Scripture might be familiar to us, I pray that you would come and minister to us afresh by your Holy Spirit. I ask that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, illumined, that we would be able to see what's in your word. Father, I pray that through the testimony of your word and the preaching of your word, you would strengthen our confidence in you. As we see so many prophecies being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, would we gain confidence that you are really able to do what you've promised to do. And so, Lord, I pray that as a result of our time together today, we would come away trusting you more and hoping in you more and having confidence in you more because of your word. And uh, there's nothing that I can do to produce that. So Lord, I pray that you would give me grace in preaching and give my brothers and sisters grace in hearing the word this morning that we would all together be strengthened and confirmed and established in the word. It's our, it's our goal, it's our prayer. And so Father, would you do it? Would you come by your Holy Spirit and press your word into our hearts so that we are changed into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, it's kind of an interesting start to this passage, I think, as in verse 18, 
Matthew starts by saying the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way and then you would expect him to start talking about, I don't know, the birth of Jesus. And he doesn't. <laughs> he never actually gets to the birth of Jesus. Rather, he focuses his attention on the miraculous conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and the circumstances surrounding that, not as much the physical and actual birth of Jesus. We can contrast that with Luke's gospel, right? Luke 2, I mean, we get all the details. We get the manger, the swaddling clothes, the animals, the shepherds, all of it. And there's none of that in Matthew. Rather, what he's doing is focusing on the theological significance of the coming of Jesus. And we can see this emphasis even in the word choice that he uses here. So if you look at verse 18, the word birth is the same word for genealogy or Genesis that we see in verse 1. So you have your Bible open, look at verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And when we preach verse 1, we establish that that meant the beginning, the start, the Genesis. There's something new starting here in the coming of Jesus. It's the same word here in verse 18. Now, the beginning of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So what he's doing by using the same word there is drawing our attention again to the fact that this is something significant happening. This is not just the coming of a baby in some kind of skewed detail. This is theologically significant in what God is doing in the coming of his son Jesus Christ. Now Matthew relies heavily on Isaiah chapter 7 which predicted that a virgin would conceive and give birth and bear a son not a daughter, a son, and that he would call his name Emmanuel. In fact, in my study, I think I spent as much time in Isaiah as I did in Matthew this week. There's just so much overlap and so much connection between these two books. It's stunning. So here is the unique thing, that Matthew, unlike Luke or John, he doesn't focus much in the book on the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit. That's not like a, a primary theme in Matthew's writing. It's not at all that he thinks it's insignificant or he, he doesn't believe in the Trinity or anything like that. We're going to see this play out in our text this morning. But he has a different emphasis. He wants us to know by mentioning that this is the virgin birth and making the connection to Isaiah, he wants us to know that the coming of Jesus is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's emphasizing this by including this because he wants us to know this is the Son of God. So there's two reasons he does this. I'm going to share them with you briefly. First, he wants us to see a parallel. I just mentioned this a minute ago. A similarity. So if we think back to Genesis 1, and we see in the creation of the world that it is the Holy Spirit that is the instrument, right? The Spirit is hovering over the deep, and then is the means by which God creates all of the heavens and the earth. So similarly here, he wants us to see that just as the Holy Spirit is present and responsible for the creation of the physical world, so the Holy Spirit here in Matthew 1.18 is present and responsible for the birth of Jesus. He is creator spiritus, the, the spirit who creates. Only this time, what he creates will not fail, it will not sin it will not be subjected to caving into temptation, but will perfectly obey the law of God. So similar yet dissimilar. See that? 
That's what Matthew's doing here. We are meant to see Jesus not only as a, um, like a vague comparison to Adam, like we read this and go, yeah, I can see some similarities of what's going on. What Matthew wants us to do and what the whole scripture wants us to do is see Jesus not as a one-to-one comparison to Matthew, but he is better. He is greater. He is going to succeed where Adam fails. He is going to win where Adam loses. And by making this connection that Jesus is born of the Holy Spirit, same connections that we saw earlier in Matthew 1, we are meant to see a parallel but with a greater fulfillment. You read the book of Hebrews, it is very clear that Jesus is better greater than all of the types in the shadows that we see in the Old Testament. So we should see Jesus as the new and better head of mankind as we come into Matthew chapter 1 because of this connection with the Holy Spirit. Matthew's second reason, I think, and there's probably more. These are just two. The second reason for emphasizing this has to do with lineage. Okay, so just as the genealogy that we looked at last week firmly established Jesus as coming in the line of King David, by Matthew mentioning the conception by the Holy Spirit, that firmly establishes Jesus as being divine, the Son of God. Okay, you you see that connection? We should see both of those things as firming up the thinking about who Jesus is, that he is both Son of God and Son of Man. So Jesus then... If he is son of David, son of God, is uniquely qualified to establish the kingdom that was promised to God's people in 2 Samuel 7. So God promises to King David, I'm going to establish a kingdom, I'm going to establish a throne, and the king who sits on that will rule forever. Well, what human king can rule forever? Nobody, we die. But Jesus is eternal. The Son of God is eternal. So Matthew connects him by virtue of this virgin conception, this miraculous conception here, to being not only the Son of David, who has the kind of legal right to sit on the throne of that kingdom, but also as being conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is divine and therefore uniquely qualified to sit on the throne as the everlasting king. And this is what Matthew is reminding of us. Now some people kind of protest Jesus' connection to David via Joseph because Joseph isn't actually David's biological father. So they say, well, if we trace the rest of the lineage down, it seems to be, you know, so-and-so fathered so-and-so and and was the father of so-and-so, but that wasn't really the case here. If this is true and he's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, then how does it work that the connection between Jesus and Joseph to Matthew works? And I think that's a good question. But the way that it worked back in this day, according to the Hebrew law and customs, it was the father who had the right to name the child and to bring them into the temple on the eighth day and have them circumcised. So when the angel comes to Joseph in the dream and says, you are the one who's going to name him this, he's giving Joseph the authority He's saying, you are going to be the earthly father. So Joseph does. He he names the baby Jesus and gives him kind of this legal authority in a sense, in a practical sense, to become the father of the Messiah. So you see how that works? So no biological connection, 
But the connection is through Joseph being a son of David. So by Matthew saying, let's just wrap this up, that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is again making this connection back to the book of Genesis that we would see the coming of Jesus as a magnificent event. Just as the creation of the physical world, so now God is doing it again and creating something new that his son will be the head of. And he's reinforcing the divinity of Jesus, which qualifies him to sit on David's throne forever. Now, speaking of Joseph, there's not a lot of information about him in the Bible, is there? If we read the Synoptic Gospels, which is everything except John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we read John, there's not a whole lot of information about Joseph. He's, he's here, right? He's, he's a part of the, the start of all of this, but he doesn't show up in the rest of the book. Now, we see him kind of mentioned when they take Jesus to the temple, when uh, when he's a little bit older, but even then it, it mostly focuses on Mary and Jesus, and so there's not a lot of information. Now, it's easy to speculate and try to sort of build a character profile based on some cultural things and some historical things, and I want to be really careful not to speculate anything. We have the Word of God, which gives us everything we need, right? Amen to that? Yes? Okay, that's good. We, we agree on that. But it is significant because the passage here gives us three things that I think are noteworthy about Joseph. So I'm going to tell you these things, not because he's the main point, but because in telling you these things, it's going to kind of help us understand some of the wording that's going on in this section, particularly from 18 to 21. So let's take a look at these things. First thing we see is that Joseph was just, meaning he was righteous. I don't mean perfectly, I just mean he was of good character. From this verse, uh, we gather that Joseph feared God. He wanted to do the right thing according to Mary. He understood the law of God. He had clearly studied. He knew what was required of him, what was allowed of him as far as purity and marriage and betrothal and all of these other things that are going on surrounding this situation. Now, an engagement in those days was more of a kind of official contract. And it was usually made about a year before the couple was actually married. But during that time of engagement, they were practically considered married, except they hadn't consummated the marriage physically yet. And there was very strict requirements on they were never allowed to be alone. They were preserving, which is good, by the way, preserving the sanctity of the institution of marriage. So here's how it worked. Marriages were mostly arranged <clears throat> with both sets of parents consenting to the engagement and these sort of enforcing this strict requirement for purity when the engagement happened. And because they were arranged marriages, husband and wife didn't really know each other that well until they got married. So most of the decision making is made by mom and dad on both sides and they agreed to all this. The girls were usually 14 to 15 years old. The men were usually 17 to 18 years old. And they wouldn't, you know, they didn't date. They didn't court each other. They didn't spend a lot of time together during the portion of this engagement. And the reason that I bring this up is that Joseph doesn't really know Mary that well. Sometimes, you know, you, you maybe read, a, we saw a little Christmas video a couple years ago and it was like, Oh, they grew up together and they were picking flowers when they were kids together and they were doing... No, that didn't happen. That's extra biblical. 
They didn't know each other. They, they weren't like best friends. And the reason I bring this up is because Joseph has no reason to trust Mary when she says, I didn't do what everybody thinks I did here. He doesn't know her. And so yet the, his righteousness, his, his desire to do what's right, he says, I'm just going gonna, gonna to do this quietly. I don't, I don't want to embarrass her. If you look back at uh, verse 19. He says, he was unwilling to put her to shame. That's a sign of maturity. That's a sign of the righteous desire of this man, Joseph. So rather than taking the normal public route, you see, a husband of a wife, if he even suspected her of unfaithfulness, could bring a charge of adultery against her publicly. And whether that proved out to be true or not, she was kind of marked as an adulteress in that community. Joseph knows this. So rather than bringing shame upon her, he does something I think pretty noble, and he says, I'm just going gonna, gonna to take care of this quietly. And Matthew tells us that Joseph, showing this compassion to Mary, resolving to do what he needed to do quietly is a sign of his righteousness, that he was a just man before the Lord. Even though he's in a challenging situation, and I'm sure he's at least a little bit ticked off at what happened, he chooses not to just go and do what the law permitted him to do. He chooses to honor Mary, which I think is a reflection of this upright character that he has. The second thing we see about Joseph is that he's a son of David. And I mentioned this just a moment ago. That is that he is a descendant of David the king. And we trace this line back last week. And I'm not going to mention much about this, but I'll just say again, by the angel calling him a son of David... It reinforces and reminds us that Joseph does have the qualification to be the legal father of the Messiah. So by all of these details, we are being reminded nothing's out of place here. Nothing's wonky. Nothing is kind of suspect in this. It is all done above board. God is orchestrating every detail of this situation. Third thing to note, and last thing, Joseph is obedient to the Lord. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him to do. <laughs> That's obedience, right? When you do something you're instructed to do, we call that obedience. So even though he was confused and probably hurt, after hearing what the angel tells him, he chooses to obey the Lord rather than ignoring the instruction and just going through with whatever he had already determined to do. So even though Joseph doesn't play a significant role in the rest of the story and the rest of the account of Jesus, I think it is still so good for us to see the providence of God at work as he entrusts his son. God entrusts his son to a righteous, obedient human father who is going to raise up Jesus according to the law of God, who's going to teach him a trade, who's going to teach him how to work with his hands, how to take responsibility. See, God doesn't just establish the, the theological part of things and then kick it over to the human side and say, well, figure this out on your own. He is involved in every detail of this account. Everything. So by seeing these, just these little glimpses of Joseph, I'm not trying to emphasize him more than I should, but I want you to understand God's hands are all over this. There is no detail left to chance. So he takes his son, Jesus, born of you know, miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and entrusts him not just to any old man, 
but to one who is descended from David, one who fears God, is obedient to God, and will raise Jesus, the human Jesus, in a way that honors the Lord. And I think that's, I think that's significant. So I want to spend the rest of our time in this text looking at the fulfillment of prophecy that we see. And I already mentioned that Matthew is relying heavily on Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to get to that in a minute. And there's a broad sense in which everything here is fulfilling prophecy. If you look at verse 22, Matthew says, All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And of course, all of this is referring to what we just read previously. So let's focus on what Matthew seems focused on, and that is the messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7. And the reason that I want to do this, and I think it's worth our time looking at this, is because I want to reinforce what I've been saying here for the last three years, that God is faithful to keep his promises 100% of the time. God is faithful to keep his promises. So when we come across texts like this with explicit reference back to the very prophecy that is being fulfilled, it should encourage us. It should strengthen our confidence in God that we see, okay, God promised this by the prophet Isaiah and it is happening exactly, exactly like it was promised to do. What should that do for you? What should that do for me? It should remind us that when we see a promise in God's word, something like, I'll never leave you or forsake you, something like, I'll be with you to the end of the age, something like, I'll strengthen you and uphold you and establish you, we can know with confidence that that's true because we look back at things like this and see that God is proving himself faithful. So let's look at the prophecy and fulfillment. First part is seen in our text in the fact that Mary conceives, that is, becomes pregnant, not by a man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this was to fulfill what God had spoken through Isaiah. So here's Isaiah 7.14. This is the chief text that Matthew is working from. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, literally, look, (laughs) the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, some people read this, and they read what happens in Matthew 1, and they assume that there's some kind of weirdness going on, like the Holy Spirit takes physical form and somehow makes this happen that way. Well, that is not at all what is going on in the text. That is a wrong conclusion. What is happening here is that this is the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. This is not some kind of strangeness, some kind of voodoo, some kind of spooky stuff. This is the power of God, the same creative power that was demonstrated at the creation of the world is being demonstrated here in the creation of physical life. That's why the connection, see? So that we understand, oh, wait a minute, God's already done this. We've already seen this. So this shouldn't be overly shocking to us. Luke 1 The angel is talking to Mary before any of this happens. And he says this in Luke 1, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So this is a miraculous work of God, not not something to be explained away by human logic or reason. Sometimes when we come to the Bible, we are far too quick to try to 
help God out of a bind. We read something and we go, ooh, well, that, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't look right. Why don't, we, why don't we try to come up with something that kind of helps to explain how this can happen? That's really dangerous. If we do not believe that God has the power to miraculously and inexplicably do things, that is without explanation, then our faith is dead. If you don't believe that God can do this, then how could he possibly change your heart? How could he do anything that he's done in your life if he can't do this? So we got to be really careful. We're very uncomfortable usually with things that we can't explain, right? We don't like that. We like to know everything. We're, we're information monsters. We're just eating all the information up that we can get. We don't like it when we don't know what's going on. But rather than doubting God's ability or saying, oh, there, there must be some human explanation for this. No, this is God. This is God who is unlike you. God who is not constrained by what constrains you and I. Working miraculously to fulfill a promise that was made some 700 years before Jesus comes. Isn't that great? And I just got to say, this is such an encouragement to see God being faithful to his word. This phrase that Matthew uses to fulfill what the Lord had spoken, it's a favorite. He uses it 10 times in his book in addition to literally hundreds of Old Testament quotations and illusions and citations. And I think what Matthew is doing by including all of these things is trying to reinforce to his readers, the Jewish readers, that there is connectedness here, right? Jesus comes, and he says that we're going to see this in a few weeks, not to abolish everything that happened from Genesis to Malachi, but to fulfill it. So by connecting these things from Old Testament to New Testament and vice versa, what he is doing is saying, this is the promised one. This is the one who fulfills everything that has been written about before. He's not establishing a totally new system here. He is trying to inform his readers and convince them that Jesus completes and fulfills all that God had promised to his people in the past. Therefore, he makes these connections, whether it be Holy Spirit and creation, whether it be back to Isaiah's prophecy, whether it be back to the Psalms, whatever it takes, Matthew wants his mostly Jewish readers to understand this is it. This is the one. This is who you've been waiting for. So Matthew relies heavily on Isaiah 7 throughout the passage. We see some of this in verse 18. With Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit, we see some in verse 21 with the fact that it is a son born, just as was prophesied, and even what to name him, all of these things, all of these explicit things, that means clear, all of this points to the fact that Jesus does indeed fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. But just in case anyone isn't getting it, Matthew cites the text explicitly. Look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And here he adds just a little phrase, which means God with us. He adds this detail in this quotation to Isaiah 7 to communicate to his readers that the very thing the people of God have been pursuing almost forever, namely the presence of God, has come in the person of Jesus. I think I can make a pretty strong case for this, that what the people of God, and I mean 
the true people of God, those who believed God, those who followed him, those who were seeking after him, what they were going after was the presence of God, God dwelling with his people. And if you were here over the last year and we went through uh, the last three books of the Old Testament, wasn't that the repeated theme that we saw, that God makes a promise that I'm going to be with you, I'm going to dwell with you, I'm going to take care of your sin and wipe that away so that I can dwell, so that holy God can dwell with his people? It was so clear that the promise of God's presence was what the people were after. This is why the temple had such massive significance in the old covenant and it's absent in the new the temple was where the people of God knew the presence of God to be. They went there to hear from God, to offer their sacrifices, to hear from the priest, to mediate the presence of God to them. But now Matthew is saying, the new temple is here. The presence of God is here. He is here. The one that you've been waiting for, the one that's been promised to you, he's come. And those who were waiting eagerly for the coming of the Messiah, here I'm thinking of people like Simeon, in the temple, you read about him in Luke 1. Those who are waiting for the Messiah hear this news with great rejoicing. God has come. God is with us. Well, those who kind of had a different understanding of what the Messiah would be were sorely disappointed with the coming of Jesus because he didn't do what they thought he should do. Now, of course, the reality is that God has always been with his people, right? I mean, he's... He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. <laughs> he cannot not be with his people in one sense. But is that, is that all this is talking about? Is this just talking about the, the physical representation of the presence of God? No. No, of course not. It's talking about the intimate covenant relationship that God designed to be with his people and that he is now accomplishing through Jesus Christ. And as we look through the Bible, and you maybe have noticed this before, from Genesis all the way through, there is a progressive nature to the presence of God with his people. So here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, what do we see as the presence of God? Well, we have things like the pillar of smoke and fire as he leads his people through the, through the wilderness wanderings. We see things like the presence of God being in the most holy place in the tabernacle. It's kind of centralized. It's kind of here and there. It doesn't seem to be you know, universal and all over. Then, what Matthew is saying, when Jesus comes, God is present with his people through him, through Jesus. In other words, it's, it's better than these kind of spotty, hit or miss things in the past, but it's still not universal, okay? So it's better, but it's, we're not quite at the fulfillment yet. Now, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, now in the church age, how do we experience the presence of God? Somebody say it, through the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus ascends to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. So now it's even bigger than it was with Jesus. The presence of God is there, but you had to, you had to be there with Jesus. But now, and this is why he says, you're going to do greater things than I do because his spirit is present in every believer and this is how God is equipping and enabling his people to take this gospel everywhere it's not limited to Jerusalem it's not limited to the Decapolis or, or the area right around them it is now global and where are we headed is that it is this how now we experience the presence of God and no hope of anything better no 
When Jesus Christ establishes the new heavens and the new earth, we, the people of God, will experience the presence of God in uninhibited, unmediated, white-hot glory. As being perfected in Christ, we experience the presence of God in absolute fullness. That's where we're headed. So you see how this grows and is bigger the further we move through redemptive history. Starts with pretty secluded, pretty exclusive access. Jesus comes and it grows a little bit, but you still have to be there. Then he sends his spirit who indwells, and at the consummation of the ages, God will dwell with his people. Isn't that a great hope for us? Because we've seen it happen in the past. So all the faithfulness of God in revealing his presence up till now, we can know that what's promised in the future is going to happen. It's one of the reasons that I want to make these connections so that we can see God's faithfulness to his people. So, as we consider everything that we've seen in this text, what does it mean for us? Think about, okay, what have we seen? We've seen the coming of Jesus, his miraculous conception, identifying him as the son of God, right? We've seen the connection to David through Joseph, which gives him the legal right to sit on the throne of David forever. We've seen that he perfectly and precisely fulfills the promises of God that were made through the prophets beforehand. We've seen how the presence of God is made known through him. So what, what do we do with this? So what? Is it just interesting or is there, is there something that we can leave here with? Well, I think that our response to these things beyond the Christmas normality. Sometimes we read these texts and they just automatically go to parties and lights and gifts and eggnog and whatever else you guys participate in. But I think that what this text does is it highlights for us the same thing that we highlighted when we started the service, and that is the triune nature of God. Did you see that in the text? I didn't, I didn't really point this out as we went along because I wanted to come back and, and sort of draw it out. But let me explain how we see this and why it's important, and we'll end here. God the Father has planned and purposed throughout all time to send his Son. Paul says grace was given to us in Christ before the ages began. So before the creation of the world, God has this plan in place to redeem his people through the sacrifice of his son, to restore the relationship that has been severed by sin and to bring his people back into the experience of his presence. The Holy Spirit, creator spiritus, brings about the conception of Jesus so that God's word proves true. So that you and I have confidence that as we read this account, as we read these texts, we see the Spirit active not just in the conception of Jesus, but also empowering him throughout his ministry. And of course, Jesus himself, the Son of God, in free and willing submission to the Father, sets aside his right as God, and he comes and lays down his life for us, for his people. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all there. They're all there. And it, 
I want us to know this as a church. We got three months to get ready for Christmas, right? And I want you to know this because as we come into the Christmas season, which is a wonderful season to celebrate. I am not anti-Christmas. I love Christmas. But what I want you to remember is that, you know, the common, well, Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes and amen to that. But there's also the Father. There's also the Holy Spirit. And what we see in the coming of Jesus is what I call the success of the triune God in all of the things that he has purposed, in all of the things he has planned, in all of the things he has accomplished, it is to the praise of the glory of his grace. So as we read through this and as we come into the Christmas season, don't reduce Christmas to Jesus. And I know that sounds really bad, but hang with me. It is an act of all three members of the Trinity. Therefore we say, oh come, let us adore him. Because it is the result of the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I am saying praise and worship is the response to this text. As we see God reveal himself through his word, reveal his works, I want you to feel that. And I want you to worship God because of this. So this Christmas, as we come into the season... It's a really great opportunity to talk to people about these things. Everybody likes Christmas, except for Scrooge, but we'll leave him out of this. Use this. Use these opportunities. Remind people, yes, we celebrate the coming of Jesus, but did you know? <laughs> and then read Matthew 1, 18 to 25. It's a great apologetic and a great way for us to share the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing to be able to see that the work that you have accomplished is not isolated. It is not unexpected. Rather, you, you promised all these things. You predicted all of these things through your prophets. And now, as we're getting into the gospel of Matthew, we're seeing that everything you have promised has come to pass. So, Father, I pray for everyone in this room now, you're your children, those of us who belong to you, would you cement into our hearts a kind of confidence in your plan so that as we go forward in our lives and we come against circumstances that seem questionable or difficult or insurmountable, I pray that you would give us the hope that you are able to do all things because you have planned and purposed all the details of our lives from before we were ever created so God, give us a greater level of trust in you. Help us to know you through your word, to understand what you've called us to, and help us to trust you more as you reveal yourself to us. So Father, we thank you for the coming of Jesus. We thank you that he did indeed fulfill all of the practical and legal and theological requirements to be our Savior so that we can call upon him now for the forgiveness of our sins. What a plan, what a savior, and what a God. So Father, help us to press this into the corner of our lives and live the truth that we profess. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.